Hello, and welcome to the first episode of the IWP Files, the Alumni Spotlight Series, the podcast where we delve into the successes, the challenges, the advice, and the lessons learned from a national security graduate's perspective. My name is Katie Bridges. Today, I have the pleasure of hosting James Stoffel, a 2020 graduate of the Institute of World Politics from the Master of Arts program in Strategic Intelligence Studies. James is currently active as a cybersecurity consultant and a filmmaker. Well, James, thank you so much for agreeing to do this interview for the Institute of World Politics um, Alumni Spotlight Series. I'm really happy to be here and anything I can do to help the school, I'm always eager to do. So thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Um, I would love to just start by asking you a little bit about your background before IWP. Sure. I um, went to Gettysburg College. I was a history major and international affairs major, and then um, I did ROTC. So that sent me right into the Army. Um, I had kind of an easy contract, some would say, because I only owed three years. They didn't pay for my undergrad. So I spent three years mostly at Fort Bragg as a field artillery officer, sort of got familiar with um, the targeting process, which is kind of analogous between how field artillery targets things and the intelligence community does. So I sort of had in my mind that I could translate that skill set to the intelligence community or at least somewhere in the national security space. Um, But I also knew I wanted to go back to school and I had the GI Bill in my pocket. So I had seen um, a couple of gentlemen with a banner for the Institute of World Politics at Gettysburg doing a career fair for grad school. Um, they kind of talked to me, they seemed very mission oriented, which attracted me. Um, and I submitted an application as soon as I got out of the army and you guys were kind enough to let me in the door. Um, so did you look at any other graduate schools? I did, but I, something about the Western Civ portion of the Institute of World Politics, the emphasis on it was really attractive to me. I didn't see it other places. Um, and just how career-oriented it was, I liked. Because um, I wasn't really interested in, in theory so much or um, being an academic. Not that there's a, that'd be a lovely career path, but it just sort of wasn't what I wanted to do. And, and the school seemed much more geared towards getting professionals where they needed to be. So, Okay, awesome. And how was the transition from the Army back into academia? Well, I remember asking my professor for permission to go to the bathroom, and he was like, <laughs> you're, in a, you're a grown man. You can go to this. Like, yeah, it's kind of, so there's funny things like that. Um, but yeah, you get used to having a little less structure, which is kind of funky. But um, it's a, there's a lot of veterans in the school. A lot of the professors are prior service. Um, so folks speak the language. And um, it was a very easy transition and a great place to for, I think, transitioning veterans to look into for getting an education. Yeah. Awesome. And then um, you started working simultaneously to starting grad school. Is that correct? Yeah. I came out of the military with a a certain clearance, but I wanted to sort of um, get work that would elevate that. Um, So I sort of sought that out. And I think for a lot of folks who are getting into either cleared work or government work, um, you know, you just have to get your foot in the door somewhere and then you can maybe laterally move to something else you want to do. I started out doing a what I thought was a pretty cool gig, but it was certainly entry level and it was clerk work, just doing records management for um, FBI case files that I thought was really interesting, but wasn't what I wanted to necessarily do for my career. Um, but it was a great way to keep money in the door as I was at school. Um, the school's really great about having a schedule that lets you attend in person, but still have time for your day job. So students are really able to knock out their career development during the day and come at night and, and get that 
that degree going, which is really, that's what I did. And it was really helpful to be able to do both at the same time. That's awesome. And then you, your next move out of that position, tell me about that. Um, so after that, I was uh, working for a federal contractor um, at FBI Counterterror um, as essentially a FISA targeter um, in that space. I, I think there was translation from military experience to that work. It was really fascinating work. Um, and I sort of got more uh, analysis experience under my belt. Um, so I was there for a little while, but you know, if you don't choose to sort of make a transition to the to federal employment, you sort of are at the mercy of your, your contract and what's going on with, with bidding on that and, and the private sector. So I ended up um, hopping around for a few years. You know, you get more experience, you can leverage that into um, different compensation or different roles you wanna do. So it's the grass is always greener, but being on the, the contractor side of the house, you, you do move around a little bit more. There's um, a cost there, but one of the benefits is you get a broader experience, I think, because you get to work for multiple agencies. So I was at um, DHS INA for a while. They have a very cool mission um, doing document and media exploitation. So, you know, if a law enforcement operation yields, let's say, a tablet or a phone, you can go through that device and develop information that will help lead to either further cases, further arrests, things like that. So I did that for a little bit. Um, but after a while, sort of market forces kind of pushed me into the cybersecurity space. Um, I, you know, naturally, I think I'm more of a writer. Um, I wouldn't say I was actually that gifted or um, well suited for intelligence analysis work, um, just based on my personality. And I found I actually really liked writing for government more um, in the policy space. And I was at uh, DOD CIO for a little bit, really cutting my teeth on writing for government at that level um, and familiar familiarity with um, our nation's cybersecurity policies, especially from the DOD perspective. And that's a really interesting space with cool stakeholders um, and a lot of different missions to be accomplished with a diverse array of actors. So that was a really interesting learning experience as well. Sort of how do you build coalition among like an interagency group of different stakeholders with different needs and different wants and different desired outcomes and cobble together enough consensus to, you know, uh, as we say at IWP, um, what is the phrase? Uh, full spectrum statecraft, right? You get to see that in action, which is really cool. I know that IWP loves stressing that and it was fun to see it in real life where you have um, four or five different agencies with different remits and authorities and desired outcomes coming together to accomplish a more singular line of effort. So that was really interesting and I found I liked that more than being um, more strictly on the intelligence analysis side of the house. And I've been in that space um, ever since. So I've been doing that for about five or six years now. Has your IWP education been helpful to you kind of on a day-to-day -day basis? I, I know you said you see the big picture, but yeah. in, the, in the little picture of your daily work. It, it totally is, because on the one hand, you know, like I said, IWP, the watchword seems to be full spectrum statecraft. Um, and it's really helpful to know that going into your work, but by and large, all of us are in a tiny little corner of the government and we have our small swim lane. So you appreciate what your role is in the larger orchestra, but you're the flute player. and so. I think coming out of IWP, I had a better appreciation of, hey, sometimes you just need to play your flute. And yeah, there is this larger orchestra going on and where possible from your, where you're sitting, you should try and incorporate um, that full spectrum statecraft, but don't lose sight of the fact that you have your remit from the taxpayer and you have your job to do. And anything you do outside of your swim lane will have sort of second and third order effects outside of what you're doing that you might not have business doing. Um, so that's basically like a, a sort of limiting principle I came out of IWP with that I think 
is missing in a lot of corners of government of, well, you need a kind of a limiting principle. What is it you do? What is your remit? Because I think a lot of folks default is let's do more. Let's get more turf. Let's get more of a mission. Let's broaden our scope. Let's do more, more, more. And I have a deeper appreciation for a seasoned bureaucrat who sort of appreciates um, recognizing what their role in the bigger symphony is and doing that well instead of trying to broaden their scope. So it's kind of a contradiction there between the full spectrum statecraft and then also knowing your your role and staying in that. Um, but I, I wouldn't have appreciated that, I don't think, if I hadn't come out of IWP. And it's fun kind of getting to um, to see it in action. So, yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. Um, have Were there any um, specific classes that you really loved or found interesting or applicable? Oh, yeah. Um, I, for me, the most illuminating, I think, was um, the Western moral tradition with um, Professor Wood. You know, growing up in the United States, I had some cursory Western civ, but I think probably not enough. And I think that's um, a broader problem that folks aren't getting that Western civ education. But I really like that IWP starts with that. Um, I think the school has a recognition that America and Western liberal democracies writ large have this like tremendous soft power to export our values. Um, we have these narrative generating institutions, media, film, literature, um, whatever it is, we're able to export things we believe agnostic of government policy around the world in a way authoritarian countries can't, collectivist minded countries can't, um, and that really is a secret power that we have. Um, but you can't really leverage that if you don't know what your own values are uh, so starting like in Professor Wood's course with the premise of, well, Western civilizations debated the idea of what is a good life? What is a life well lived? And what is your life in relation to the state? Something we've hemmed and hawed on for like thousands of years. So let's take that premise and go through, uh, Greek thought, Roman civics, and sort of a Judeo-Christian ethical framework and figure out how we land on the enlightenment values that we all sort of take for granted and swim in today. And when you have that kind of appreciation of how we get to the enlightenment, our own founding documents like the Declaration, the Constitution, they make a lot more sense and you're a lot more comfortable exporting your values or shaping the world for those values to flourish, which is essentially what foreign policy is. So if you don't have that, that foundational basis, it's really hard to, exp to, to fight for those values abroad and convince other cultures that our way of doing business is the right way if you don't even believe it or you don't know why you're saying it. So that's why I really love that Western Civ course. And I, I, I hope more schools take a page from IWP on that. So I understand that you are involved in film projects and that you have started to incorporate these ideas into your projects. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah. <laughs> um, I have two good friends I grew up with who have made um, filmmaking their life, and I try and help them however I can. And I sort of noticed this connection between um, the Western Civ dynamic I learned at the Institute of World Politics and storytelling, because just like we're exporting our values into the world through foreign policy, a story almost invariably lands on a value, even a stupid comedy without realizing it, it prioritizes one value over another, right? A protagonist is trying to accomplish something. So whatever that something is, it has to have some value or else why is he doing it and why do we care? Um, why do we empathize with the protagonist if she or he isn't doing something, of, doesn't have a virtue we don't appreciate? So without even thinking about it, a story does land on values. Um, so having that Western civilization background, especially that, that sort of moral and intellectual history, 
um, gives you a lot of tools in your toolkit to tell a story and know why you're telling it. So that helps. And um, sort of in particular, our, our next picture is going to be, um, it's a genre comedy. First and foremost, we're storytellers, right? Like we like to take a really fun, entertaining movie, watch people have a lot of fun in the theater, and hopefully make some money. So that is really, at the end of the day, what we're doing. Um, but some an intersection I found with my time here at IWP is, well, the story we want to tell, it's a, it's a genre comedy, but it's uh, in the vein of what's called a Zhang film, which is a, a form of storytelling in coming out of China in the 80s and 90s, particularly Hong Kong, where they have sort of an analogous um, vampire myth. Not quite the same as ours, but they, they have um, the same sort of cultural icon of the vampire. And those stories were told in the 80s and 90s in China, but the Chinese Communist Party sort of has put a lid on that because it's spiritual and sort of Taoist culture is a lot less acceptable from the view of like the Communist Party line. So it's much harder for them to make these movies that we would roughly understand as a, a vampire comedy, a kung fu movie, right? Like an action adventure with some cultural spiritualness in it. And they're really fun, um, but they can't make them anymore by and large. So we thought it would be fun to play with Western ideas and, and, and Eastern ideas where we have the, the Western vampire hunter, Van Helsing, that everyone knows he has his like garlic and his steak and his cross. And we have his Chinese counterpart um, who deals with Zhang Ji, these Chinese vampires. And they play off each other sort of in a buddy cop dynamic hunting vampires together. And they kind of make fun of each other's cultures and their ideas. And the backdrop is sort of the Russian Civil War, the Red Revolution. It's like Europe 1918 to 1920. And we sort of learn that the communists are maybe useful idiots for the vampires. They have the same enemy. So we sort of hope to land on freedom of religion and, and explore both cultures' views on the vampire myth. But at the end of the day, it's a fun action adventure buddy cop movie like Shanghai Noon or, or Rush Hour or something like that. So I think we wouldn't have been able to kind of articulate this movie that way if I didn't have sort of that background from IWP and my friends weren't superb filmmakers, which they are. So it's a lot of fun to get to do a side project outside of your day job and connect it to the school. So yeah. Wow, that is so cool. It's I fun. Know. And yeah, I, at the, again, at the end of the day, we're storytellers. We want to make a fun movie that people enjoy. And yeah. When does it come out? We're starting writing in June. Okay. Uh, but our previous feature length film, which is actually on the film circuit now, in its own silly way, it does kind of connect to like the Western tradition that again, I got from IWP and that it's about a fur trapper who is fighting literally hundreds of beavers and they're just anthropomorphic guys in beaver costumes, but he's a fur trapper and he wants to get, uh, he wants to get the girl and he has a fur trapper buddy whose daughter, he wants her hand in marriage, but to do that, he has to have a bunch of pelts. So it's him in the woods for two hours doing like slapstick Looney Tunes, silent humor, uh, fighting hundreds of beavers and it's called hundreds of beavers. And it's a st stupid, fun, really entertaining comedy. But we were sort of thinking about it and we we're like, well, why would our audience root for this fur trapper slaughtering all of these, these beavers in like a Roadrunner Looney Tunes style? And it's like, well, there's something to be said about um, individualism that I think is appreciated in an American audience. And well, why does an American audience appreciate an individualistic look? And it sounds pretentious, but you can kind of tie it back to Genesis in a sense, you know, um, man's made in God's image and go forth and uh, be fruitful and, and tame the land. And it, you take it for granted, but even something as silly as our dumb slapstick comedy beaver movie, 
there's a reason these stories resonate with people. And it's just a pyramid of values and stories and narratives built on top of each other that I didn't really appreciate until I had someone like Professor Wood take me by the hand and walk me through the Western canon. So yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun to kind of tie all this stuff back and figure out why stories land or they don't, even if it's our own stupid, funny comedies, which is all we try and do really, so. That is so fun. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Um, I wanted to backtrack because I realized I forgot to ask you a qu one question um, that I always love to ask. What What do you feel is the biggest impact that you've made at your in your current role so far? Um, professionally in my, my job? Yeah, in your in your job. Um, I'm good at being the stick in the mud guy because I sort of like I said, there most folks don't have a limiting principle. It's hey, let's do this. Hey, we have this new priority. Priorities are changing every two seconds with the political winds. It helps if you can if you can swing it to be the person in the room to say maybe we shouldn't do this or maybe we don't have the bandwidth to do this. And you're not always the most popular person, but I think coming in with a more realist um, view on what government can and should do, especially within your corner of the government, um, is a voice that doesn't get heard a lot. And it, it, I think it ultimately it's for the better of the organization to have someone in the back quietly just saying, well, maybe we don't have the resources to do this properly. Um, maybe if we did this, there would be outsized impacts across other things going on in government and this hasn't been coordinated and we need to put hold on this. Cause again, I think the default mode in government often is let's go, gotta do this, gotta turn this out. Let's get more work, let's do more missions, let's do more things. And what are your plans for the future professionally? I know that you're gonna be spending the next period making this film as well, but in the on the job side. I would like to just get better at my craft, to be honest. Mm -hmm. um, it'd be fun to get more of a subject matter expertise role. I've hopped around a lot. I like what I'm doing now. And I think there's something to be said about maybe not moving around too much after a while and just honing your craft. So I, I would like to do that. I'd like to get better at writing policy and plans for government. So that I'm keeping it simple. That's really all I want to do at this point. That's the one goal. So that's great. And are you going to stay in cyber or do you think you'll, I think so. Um, I think the cyber mission is really important. It's an exciting place to be. Um, I think we have just the work I've been doing so far, I've learned that the United States has this really deep bench of technical expertise, especially in the private sector, all of these companies that quietly underpin um, our critical infrastructure, whether it's pipelines, water treatment facilities, railroads, you name it, all of the things that make our daily life work that would come to a grinding halt in the event of some kind of cyber incident. Um, there is, like I said, just this deep bench of technical expertise out there and so getting to work with them through government in public-private programs is a lot of fun. Um, I find it reassuring. and I like sort of carving out a role to be um, more of a liberal arts humanities type who can put pen on paper what the technical information is in a format that a policymaker or a decision maker can, can digest it. So that's an important role that I think a lot of people who might not be technically minded um, and are maybe gun shy about getting into cybersecurity thinking, well, I'm not a hacker, I'm not a coder. You, you really don't need to be. So long as you can sort of appreciate the technical experts and what they're doing and, and understand things conceptually, you can draft it in a way that it makes sense for a policymaker and in, in a way that the government can hopefully help not hurt industry as we try and make all of our systems more resilient from adversaries, which is an important mission and I'm proud to be doing it. So I would like to stay in the cyberspace, yeah. Do you have any advice for undergrads who are looking at graduate schools? Yeah, I would look at IWP. I would, I would, <laughs> I would think long and hard about what you're actually getting for your money at your school. I think people are learning 
the price tag doesn't match the value add for a lot of these high name institutions that might have a lot of cultural import, but in fact, you're really not getting um, a serious education. And so I would encourage people to be um, really smart, especially undergrads, when they look at a graduate program and think, is this worth another student loan? Is this worth my time I could be making um, getting my foot in the door professionally? Does the school let me work full time? Is it sympathetic to that? Um, those are all things I would think about if I was looking at grad schools. Um, yeah. And then um, do you have any advice for a student who's just starting their career at IWP, um, you know, in terms of getting the most out of their program here? Uh, so a student who's just starting their time at IWP, um, I would be in receive mode. There's just, you know, it's a fire hose of information and the faculty here have just been there and done that. So not to discourage people from asking questions, but um, it's really rare to get an opportunity, the older you get, to just sit down and learn and have someone walk you through the important foundational texts you need to know to, to advance your career, uh, hone your craft. So just take every take every advantage while you're here because just getting the spare time to even read on your own once you're sort of into the world and full-time into your career is so um, difficult to do that it really is a special couple of years where you have the time and resources to do this, so certainly make the most of it, yeah. Awesome. And then um, just one last advice question. Um, what would you advise to students who do have the more liberal arts or national security and international affairs background who are interested in getting into cyber? Um, that you can carve out a space for yourself without being a technical expert. Um, definitely doesn't mean you're allowed to uh, carry on without trying to learn the technical aspect as best you can and understand um, what can often be really complicated uh, frameworks and concepts, but there is absolutely a space for someone who is, does not speak ones and zeros to take technical concepts and information that are very important, make them digestible for a policymaker or a decision maker, and then get that to them so our decision makers can articulate a strong whole of government policy to, to make the country more resilient from a cybersecurity perspective. That's, there's totally a space for humanities-oriented folks to do that, and I think it's important that there are people like that in the room. So back to your films, have your films won any awards? They have. Um, we've won Best Comedy, Best Feature, um, Audience Award at, I mean, gosh, I think we've done 12 or 15 festivals in the last couple of months. We've been in Brazil. We've, we're going to Japan. Um, we've been in Mexico. We're going to Brussels. We're going to Switzerland. We're going to um, a very prestigious genre film festival, Sitges, in Spain, um, just down the road from Cannes. Cannes said no. Shocker. Um, but we, uh, yeah, we've won a, a lot of awards. It really speaks to um, Rylan Tews and Mike Cheslick, who are sort of my uh, compatriots in the film project. And we, they just keep racking up all best director, um, a couple of Oscar qualifiers in Atlanta and um, Cine, uh, Cinequest or Cinecon in San Jose. Just, yeah, batting way above our, our weight class. So it's a lot of fun to watch them come in um, as a couple of knuckleheads and uh, with, the, with the Silly Beaver movie and uh, knock out all these awards. So, yeah, they're oh, good for them and they're racking it up. So. That's amazing. Congratulations yeah. to you and your team. Thanks. Wow. Yeah. So are you planning to do any award-winning uh, films in conjunction with IWP? We would really <laughs> love to because a lot of our ideas just keep bumping into things I've heard here at IWP. And we've met with a couple of the faculty, um, all of these professors who have just an encyclopedic knowledge and can point to any reference you need. So we're, we're absolutely leveraging a lot of the expertise here at the school to help us tell a truer story um, with this Helsing and Fang movie. Like, you know, what does... 
um, the intermarium region look like in 1920? Um, who are the stakeholders in the Russian Civil War? What does it look like? What are, what's the relationship between the Bolsheviks and Orthodox churches in this space? Because that's all things that I think we'd like to be on the tapestry in the background of this movie. Um, and IWP has been very helpful with that. And I think we're going to definitely keep that relationship going as long as they're as long as IWP wants to help us do this, we're, you know, we're building a coalition of the willing here. So we all the help we can get, and we love working with IWP on the projects. So. Um, well, James, thank you so much for joining us. Um, it was so great to talk with you and hear about all the exciting things that you're doing, both in your day job and in your film career. Um, well, thank you. I mean, thank you for having us. We love working with IWP on all this stuff, and I'm really grateful for the education I got here. So happy to be here and happy to do anything like this again. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you.